Rere ko huka huka ki uta, rere ko huka huka ki te tae. Ki te tihi ataranaki i te maunga i te tangata whakarongo mai, whakarongo mai. The snow flows outward, the snow flows inward, at the top of Taranaki Maunga. Its people listen, listen. And I'm Justin Murray, and you're listening to Tiahika on Radio New Zealand National. And I must say, Maria, welcome back to Tiahika Fari. Hi, kia ora, Justin. Kia ora, Tefano Fano. Yes, it flew with painful and very, very long. It's good to see you. saying what he felt needed to be said. First, as a cleric in the Anglican Church, as a Governor-General and commentator on Māori and other issues. But these statements were intended to open up discussion rather than close it down. He felt that it was his role to act as a bridge between cultures. The same spirit informs a special recording which we're bringing to you today from the Auckland Museum. For the past two years, it's run a monthly event which has music performances at its centre and a panel discussion between experts about a topic of interest. Sometimes there are general themes, other times much more specific. Before the middle of this year, a panel got together to talk about Matariki, a celebration that's pretty much been embraced by all New Zealanders, as a unique way of marking a celebration indigenous to New Zealand. What Matariki does is it reminds us of the natural time and the natural rhythms of the universe. The appearance of the the sun in the morning and the the nine months of the pregnancy, for example, the the way in which energy flows naturally, the tides, the water on the on the beaches, and the way the the wind flows, and so on. And I think the deep significance of Matariki is just for a moment, at least, it reminds us that there are other cycles of time. That was Tiahukaramu Charles Royal. You'll hear from him and a great lineup of other experts on Matariki later in this edition of Tiahika. You're listening to Tiahika, Radio Nationaland National. The next Governor General, Lieutenant General Sir Jerry Matapare, is Māori, and he follows in the shadow cast by the first Māori to fill this role, Sir Paul Reeves of Tiatiawa. He held the position from 1985 to 1990. On his retirement in 1990, he had a free for all kōrero with Radio New Zealand's own Hinare Te Ua about, well, a whole lot of things. As you'll hear in this recording from New Zealand Sound Archives, Nataoma Kōrero. Midnight last Thursday night, the most reverend Sir Paul Reeves' five-year term as Governor-General came to a close. His term was extended by a few days to take in Thursday's state opening of Parliament. Recently, I was in conversation with Sir Paul at Government House in Wellington. Sir Paul, kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, In 1959, Sir Paul, the New Zealand Planning Council published the booklet here, Mātāpuna, some Māori perspectives, a collection of essays by prominent New Zealanders. I remember that in the article which you wrote, I think in that time you were Bishop of Auckland, you spoke about this country, that in New Zealand we don't handle it all well, the, the debate about what is ultimately important. Now, I was wondering, well, that was written 11 years ago. I was wondering that whether during the last five years you've had any, had any reason why that opinion should be changed. When I made that comment, of course, I was not thinking simply about the debate between Māori and Pākehā. I was thinking about debates generally within the life of our country. And I think uh, in the late 70s, uh, uh, it was uh, a brave person who ventured into the public arena and debated this and debated that. There seemed to be forces uh, which tried to push that person and that voice down. What I think is happening now is that um, 
People are still feeling strongly in their hearts and in their stomachs, but they're beginning to move their feelings up into their minds, if I can say so, and their rational processes are now beginning to take shape and we can see them because uh, we are not simply saying what should be and could be. What we are debating about is the allocation of resources and concrete particular matters in a way that is quite dramatic. And so the Treaty of Waitangi has at last, after many years of banging on the door, has at last begun to impact upon the legal framework of our country. And that, I believe, is a course of hope. It also is the basis upon which we can debate better. So the treaty has been elemental then in opening up this, this oh, I think debating so. arena. I think so. I mean, see, the, uh, the, uh, the, that landmark decision of the uh, Court of Appeal in, in 1985 uh, over the SOEs, and, uh, you know, that, that's dramatic. And that really has given us a chance now to debate concretely and with particularity about this and about that. As you and Lady Reeves have traipsed up and down Aotearoa's support over the last five years, and you've come to contact with such a cross-section of New Zealand, from the small community groups to the, the parliamentarians, the visitors and so on. Have you, in fact, pick up, picked up any indications that people at all different levels are talking together more about what we could regard as important issues, like the Treaty of Waitangi? Well, uh, we have been... Uh, well, I have been from the, the Muttonbird Islands uh, <laughs> south of Rakiuru, Stewart Island, uh, right to the very top, and I've done that consistently. And when I go up and down, people really want to sit down and talk with me, especially in rural areas. And many of those people are not Māori people. And they want to have a chance to talk to someone in a situation where a bit of the heat's taken out of it and we can talk quietly and steadily. Uh, I notice, for instance, that many more people are now beginning to introduce a bit of Māori into something when they, they start off a meeting or have been to school assemblies. Last night I was at Nelson College and there my, my whanonga John Nuku is now involved in the life of that college and we had a pōhiri at that school. The first time that's been in and that has introduced something of a debate as I would hope it would take place. So I would say yes, as I move around the country, both Lady Reeves and I, the debate's going on quietly but nevertheless I went to the 1990 Commission, they told me that the little pamphlet and booklet which they have about the Treaty of Waitangi goes like a hot cake and they really have to keep reprinting and reprinting. 1990 itself, this sesquicentennial year has been a marvellous year. I know that many, many people have celebrated, many people have commemorated. There have been some sectors perhaps of New Zealand society which have commiserated. But as you look back on 1990, Sir Paul, would, would, would you like to feel that some of the impetus which has been set up this year continues, in fact, well beyond the 31st of December of this year? Oh, I think it has to. And I would hope that the government would consider a holding together uh, the initiatives which are taking place at local level. As I saw it at the beginning of the year, the focus was on the treaty. As the year developed, the treaty was still there, but people moved the whole thing out into the community. And in a time when small communities are under some pressure, 1990 has given them a chance to rediscover themselves, to do things which they hadn't done for a while, to run a garden party, to do this, to do that. That's important. I'll tell you one or two things that we've done. Uh, we tracked the uh, signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in the South Island. And so, for instance, we went on to Ruapuke Island, out there, uh, between Bluff and Stewart Island. Not too many people there. We went out there, amongst others, uh, with the uh, French ambassador. Nice man. But as soon as we got there, what did we see? We saw anti-nuclear and pro-peace signs. And so the debate uh, about our world today was present there on that historic site of Ruapuke. Uh, where we commemorate the signing of the, tr of the treaty by uh, Tu Hawaiki uh, and some others. So we did that. And I think uh, that wasn't just a spot thing. That is raising questions which will continue and will continue for a long time. So 1990 has been a good year. The arrival of the Waka fleet at uh, Waitangi earlier this year was quite a spectacular sight to Paul. And I, I know that last year, and I think I can count myself amongst the group of people who are rather cynical about about such a huge fleet of canoes uh, for landing at the T-Beach, but as it turned out, perhaps um, it's somehow some intangible way, I think the whole of New Zealand stood up and cheered. Well, they did, but uh, it, it was very realistic. Uh, I remember 
that we went uh, uh, from White Tangi across to Opua uh, to meet Her Majesty the Queen and to bring her back on the barge. And just as we set off from Opua, a small group of people suddenly unleashed their banners and started shouting, honor the treaty. And then we came closer towards Waitangi and we met uh, the waka, and there they were. And then we came closer to the jetty and we met a lot of other people who were also saying, honor the treaty, and were expressing their very deep-held feelings and concerns in a rather vocal, if I could say so, in a very loud way. And then we proceeded uh, up the track uh, with the, the crews of the waka really uh, lining the track and up we went onto Waitangi itself. So as I see Waitangi, it seems to me we were honouring something and at the same time questions were being asked. And the greatness of the day was we could honour the event, we could ask the questions and we could still stay together. Sir Paul, the Fano, the family unit, has often been said to be the bastion of our way of life here in New Zealand, yet unfortunately there seems to be a deterioration within, within some of the family units. You and Lady Reeves, your own daughters, you perhaps epitomise the closeness of, of, of the Fano unit. Is that, in fact, has, has that been difficult? We have our three daughters, and when I got this job, uh, they were tempted to think that... Uh, uh, their mother and father were numbered amongst the most embarrassing parents in New Zealand. <laughs> and uh, one had to realise uh, and accept the fact that what their mother and father were doing w was impacting upon them, was beginning to shape their lives. They would now be known as the daughters of someone or other, the Governor-General. We've worked with that and worked through it. And uh, my daughters are mature people. And so as three women, I think they've handled that well, each in their own way. We've also discovered that because we've been separated, we've discovered that the strength of family connection can be very real, but you have to work on it. So we've worked on it. We've communicated with each other. We've tried to meet as often as we can. And of course, uh, one of my daughters married uh, Brian, who was uh, one of my ADCs. And uh, that, of course, uh, is something which has pleased us greatly. And so the family is changing and developing. What's happening now? is that one of my daughters is in Auckland. That's my daughter, Sarah. Uh, one, Bridget, is uh, travelling at the moment and will be soon in England. And my daughter, Jane, is now at Honolulu at the East West Centre doing Pacific Studies. So they're spread abroad, but we stay together. Now, that's just a very close-knit family. Uh, there's another definition of family, especially in Māori terms, which would me would be Bukitapu uh, at Bell Block, and would be Paraninihiki Waitotara, the whole Taranaki Fano. And I want to honour and tautoko my, my relatives. Their history in the last 120 years, 130 years, has not been a good history. It's been a history of sorrow, a deprivation, things lost, things longed for. It's included uh, things like Parihaka and Tawiti Rongomai. It included uh, the history of the Chatham Islands, for instance. And yet uh, this same group of people contracted with me to support me, physically to support me, where I went. When I went to Waitangi one year, they came. Some of my cousins grumbled and said they would soon have been with the protesters, but they were with me. And there was a time when uh, it was beginning to get a little hot and the people were pressing in upon me, and my family physically uh, surrounded me. Uh, but wherever I go, as I was uh, yesterday in Christchurch, I look for the women, I look for the raggura, I meet people, those now I know, and they come in behind me. And when we do the pōhiri, I have my family with me. And that's been a wonderful thing for me. And they have come here and have stayed in Government House. And uh, at the end of my term, they will come again. And they will sleep, as we've done before, in the ballroom. And I say to them tonight, uh, we're sleeping under the stars. The stars meaning the chandeliers. Uh, and uh, that's nice. And I think they have managed to bind two things together. One is uh, the support of me. Secondly, their own integrity, their own history, their own desires have not been given away. And uh, I think that's a marvellous thing. So there's Fano in its narrow and in its wider aspect. I'm aware uh, that family life in New Zealand has its ups and downs. 
I'm aware of the casualties of that. I've been to the boys' home at Old Wairaka, for instance, in Auckland, and seen people who are there, the casualties of that, and seen both young men and young women, and seen also some of their parents in situations um, of stress and strain. Some of that is due, of course, to the economic and social situation which they haven't engendered themselves. Some of it uh, flows out of them personally, and I sorrow at that. Uh, I don't feel that I need to, to defend Māoris. What I do need to do is to encourage them to be better people. And yet, Sir Paul, there could be people who might be critical of some of the actions you've had over the last year regarding the wider whānau. Well, I don't know uh, why they should be critical. Uh, one or two people who are not Māoris grumbled a little bit uh, when so many Māoris uh, came into Government House, but then I would say to them, well, if you want to do sums and count heads, well, you can count uh, 100 Māoris that come in at one time. That balances the, the 10,000 people who are not Māoris that came in for the rest of the year. So, uh, of course, you are going to get uh, a little bit of criticism. Um, but it so happens that I am who I am. And uh, my predecessor and my successor will invite a mix of people that reflects who they are. It so happens that uh, the, the mix that reflects me includes a fair percentage of Maori people. I don't apologise for that. Support over the last five years, have you had to walk any tight ropes, especially in your relationship with your, your own church background? Has there been any conflict between state and church, for instance? Uh, not that I'm aware of. The. Uh, when we get into a conscious issue of a matter of life, for instance, and that is abortion and all that sort of thing, I do get uh, people who write to me, mostly from a, uh, a church Christian background, encouraging me to be uh, unconstitutional and, uh, if need be, to turn back uh, the decisions which the elected representatives, the members of parliament of our country might make over this or that. And I don't think they should do that, uh, because I'm not going to short-circuit something. I really am going to trust in the sense and in the conscience of those whom we elect. And what I've discovered is that in these so-called conscience uh, debates leading up to conscience votes, some of the debates in the House are marvellous debates. And uh, those people uh, who in the adversarial situation most times reveal themselves perhaps uh, as not being uh, uh, terribly concerned or, or even competent speakers in conscience issues. Uh, they really do debate well. And so uh, I've not felt a conflict there. And the Governor-General, of course, has the ability to advise, to warn and to, del to delay. But if there was a bill that had been passed through the Parliament which I felt I could not sign, I would have to resign. And I have not done that and I've not felt the need to do that. Uh, so uh, it's been like that. So the church base has not been a conflict as I've tried to be Governor-General, far from it. It's been uh, a support. It's been something which I've tried to put my hand on all the time that I've been Governor-General in a quiet way, but still, it's me. So very shortly, Sir Paul, you'll be moving to New York to perhaps get more fully back into the other side that so many people know Sir Paul Reeves for, and that is within the church itself. How do you see a role within the United Nations? Well, uh, I believe that I'm going there to represent the Anglican Communion at the United Nations, but as I talk to my friends, I have a suspicion what I'm really going to do is run a boarding house for visiting New Zealanders coming through New York. Uh, but the job specifically is to represent this worldwide Anglican church at the United Nations where we have status as a non-governmental organisation. And we relate specifically to the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. And we take our place alongside the Vatican, the World Council of Churches, uh, the World Lutheran Federation, the Quakers, so on and so forth. And behind me, I'll have uh, an Anglican church with, with networks still to be uh, discovered and, and then sort of cleaned out a little bit. In front of me, I'll have the whole edifice of the United Nations. What I'll try and do is assemble a little team of people and then find those things in the life of the United Nations, in the debating chambers, uh, in their committees, where we can make a contribution and where also we can take things which they are debating about and push them back into my own networks and say, hey, you people in the Anglican Church out there, 
this is what you ought to be concerned about. I see at least two things. Uh, I see conservation matters, and I'm also aware that the United Nations uh, debates uh, very strongly uh, the whole question of indigenous peoples. And naturally, I have a concern for that. So there are two matters which, uh, from this distance, and before I start, uh, I want just to know a bit more about. But really, I've got to go and make a job. Nobody's done it before, and so they've given me a budget, uh, office space, a desk, a fax machine, and a pat on the back. And that's what we start with. <laughs> and who ultimately do you have to report to? I suppose uh, every night, uh, Hinari, uh, I report to my maker. <laughs> but I will, con I will uh, uh, report to something called the Anglican Consultative Council, of which the Archbishop of Canterbury is the president. That's a small executive body which is based in London. Ta Paul Reeves in discussion with Hinare Te Ua. You can hear the full version of the interview at radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Tiahika. You can also listen again to the state funeral held earlier this week on Thursday by looking at the front page of our website radioNZ.co.nz. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Maria Rakuraku, and this is Tiahika. Making museums dynamic places was something Sir Paul Reeves was very keen on. His challenge to the Auckland Museum resulted in a programme which has run nearly every month for years now, bringing a lively audience in to hear music and sample other kinds of performances, as well as hear some smart talk from, well, some smart talkers. The series that kicked it all off was about identity, and this theme, as well as others, has continued to pop up in different ways since then. We're going to hear today the session recorded in the middle of the year about Matariki. Now, when I was growing up in the 80s, Matariki wasn't visible, not like how it is now. And it was the same for me when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. So it's resurgence over the last couple of years because how long would you say that's been Justine in the last... For me visibly maybe five, in the five last years five years has has been a bit Exploded. of a revelation really isn't it? And I guess it's all about us wanting to celebrate something that's uniquely indigenous to Aotearoa New Zealand so for instance there's the other celebrations. The, the Chinese New Year, um Diwali. And they all acknowledge all the many different cultures living in this country, but I guess Matariki is about celebrating something specific to Aotearoa. In June, a panel gathered at the Auckland Museum to discuss Matariki. Kirk Torrance is the chair. What's Matariki? And what is its significance today? It's not the easiest of stars to see, and not always in the sky, or so it would seem. When Matariki appears before dawn on the shortest day of the year, the sun has stood still for three days and begins its daily progress to its highest summer point where Rewa and Taris rises. So ends the autumn period of decay and begins the new cycle of growth for every living thing on earth. The period of decay is recorded in the growth rings of every tree and so with Matariki's rise we acknowledge the long nights of its absence, the cost of tragedy, and remember those who have passed on. Ceremonies, surrender the burdens of grief and celebrate life and the living. Preparations to make the most of our individual contribution to the new cycle of life, measured daily by the growing warmth of the sun and the ripening of its fruit. No civilization on earth survived without knowing these cycles and recorded them in art, storytelling, architecture. This Consciousness is the foundation of great cities, empires, and religions. People's understanding the cycles of growth became refined to the place they were in. Maintaining this information became the practice of culture, and this knowledge took at least a thousand years of careful observation and became the foundations of religion and science, which until recently were the same thing. In oral traditions, understanding key principles required stories that would be remembered, the legends so-called myths, the cultural narratives contain this information in a way that is uniquely adapted to place, identifying natural phenomena and species, weather patterns, and the people we descended from. Remembering these stories helps us understand ourselves, our place in the world, and everything that is unique about it and us. 
I'm Kirk Torrance with the next installment of Smart Talk at the Auckland Museum. And tonight I'd like to introduce some very special weighty guests. Hardy Williams, Director of Māori Partnerships at Auckland Museum. The composer and researcher, Tahukaramu Child Royal. And historian, storyteller, orator, and naughty fella all around, Peter Tuday. Now, when Peter asked me to, to sit in this chair, uh, we met at a cafe. What we talked about, or what he talked about a lot, was sex and matriki. So if he could perhaps answer the thing, what is the connection between sex and matriki, my good friend? <clears throat> now I'm really nervous. When Genghis Khan had created the greatest empire the world has ever known from the shores of the Pacific to the gateway of Europe and Africa, at that time, our language was spoken from the mountains of Madagascar, across southern Asia, through every speck of land throughout the Pacific, to the shores of South America. At that time, our language covered more of the Earth's surface than any other. This was because we were the navigators. And what was it that made us the navigators? Science and theology were together. In our theology, we consider ourselves not to be the centre of the universe. As navigators, we perceive our destination is moving, where we've departed from is moving, we are moving, touch wood, and every reference we have to guide us across the empty ocean is moving. We understood we were not the centre of the universe. That is why we could voyage. We needed anchors. People describe in the sky, in Māori law, the celestial waka. And what is the anchor? It's matariki. Why? Why is matariki the symbol of the kingitanga? Why is matariki the cornerstone of our paimāori faith? I have to say, after 20 years of inquiry, after observing, shivering in the cold, sometimes with friends, sometimes with people I've convinced to get up before dawn and shiver with me. After 20 years, I'm now starting to understand what it is I should be looking for. I don't have the answer as to what matariki is, but I'm starting to find out what the question is. Now, this question is a very important one. Sex and matariki, what's it got to do with it? What's a New Year's Eve party got to do with sex? <laughs> How would I know? <laughs> and it's not just sex. If it is sex, it's because sex is to do with procreation. It's because sex is to do with continuum. We find references that unlock these secrets for us when we visit the land, when we talk the stories of the land. In the first sitting of the land court in Tamaki, Wataruhi he said, This land was a fish hooked up by Maui. But when we dismantle how we use our language, how we express things, imagine there's two guys on a beach. Where are you going, bro? I'm going fishing. Or where are you going? Or just out to the horizon. Oh, what did you catch? Oh, I hooked up land, bro. Land? My fish is land, bro. From the horizon. Oh, you, what was your hook then? The lower jaw of my grandmother. Now, of course, that got mythologized, and he pulled the jaw out, made a fish hook out of it, and pulled it. The lower jaw is the only jaw that moves. And because the lower jaw moves, it means we can continue our traditions orally. Why the grandmother? What is it that women know that men don't know? One thing I've noticed observing Matariki is a cycle of the moon. Two years ago from Fakari out at Piha, Lion Rock, 
We watch Matariki rise. Satisfied, we prepared to put the fire out and go for breakfast somewhere. Suddenly it looked as though the, the bushes were on fire. And it was a full moon rising directly behind Matariki. We sat down and waited again. Not long after that, the sun did the same thing. I've subsequently learned that only happens once every 18 years with the cycle of the moon. This knowledge is the knowledge of the grandmothers. For us to understand these things, it is not just the experience and knowledge and courage of men. It is the knowledge that is gained from understanding the cycles of life governed by the moon as well as the sun. Kia ora no tato katoa. I was talking to Charles uh, when we were waiting for, the, uh, for this to start, and we are talking, what are you going to talk about, bro? And he says, well, you know, because Charles is a famous musician, his family's royalty. And he says, I might talk about matariki and time and the constraints of our daily life, what it means in our world now and what time means now. So without further ado, Charles Royal. Um, I can certainly remember when I was growing up, like most of, most of you here, probably never heard of a thing called Matariki, and uh, there certainly weren't um, musicians playing in grand foyers of museums marking uh, uh, Matariki. Uh, but uh, what it's marvellous is to see how much the, the, the event of Matariki and the, um, the appearance of Matariki each midwinter period, around about June, is being uh, celebrated and is being marked in New Zealand's national culture. And uh, long may that continue and long may that be in, uh, enhanced and supported and so on. Um, I, I, I'm like probably most of you here don't know a heck of a lot of matari about Matariki. Uh, so much of our traditional knowledge has been lost, our Mataranga Māori. And uh, we really only have kind of fragmentary understandings of all sorts of things. And uh, we have lots of knowledge about some things and not, lots of, not much knowledge about other things, probably not much knowledge about everything, maybe. Uh, but generally, uh, Mātauranga Māori today is, is in a fragmentary state and, and it is in a state of disorganisation, but it's going through reorganisation as we speak. And the Matariki annual celebration is an example of the kind of revitalisation, reorganisation uh, revivification, if I can use that term, of our traditional knowledge. Um, the comment that I wanted to share this evening about the significance of the annual Matariki celebration is this. Uh, we, we all live in a modern culture and which is driven and saturated by artificial time, meaning we are all driven by the clock. Uh, we're all driven by the artificial measurements of time like minutes, seconds, hours. Even the calendar that we, that we work to is largely an artificial construction. January the 1st to the 31st, or February the 1st to the 28th, or whatever. This is largely a construction of human beings uh, to project some kind of order into the world and to kind of make ourselves feel at home or at peace with the, world, the way the world is. Now, um, this, this kind of thing is intensified by our recent, uh, the culture that we're in at the moment, the culture of emails and texts and internet and even more so, milestones, outputs, outcomes and the drive to be accountable to contracts and, you know, and not to embarrass ourselves around funding mechanisms and all sorts of things. We're driven by an artificial structure of time. All of us are. We're absolutely dominated, absolutely saturated by this thing. Uh, called, uh, called I'm calling it artificial time. There are other more technical terms, I'm sure. What Matariki does is it reminds us of the natural time and the natural rhythms of the universe that exist whether human beings or not exist. Uh, we exist or not. Uh, the natural rhythms of the universe, the appearance of the, the sun in the morning and the the ascension of the sun in the sky and the, the sun going to bed at night. 
the natural rhythms of the universe, the nine months of the pregnancy, for example, the natural rhythms of the universe are the, the natural rise and fall of energy in one's body each day, um, the arrival of thought and understanding in the mind, the, the way in which energy flows naturally, the tides, the water on the, on the beaches and the way the, the wind flows and so on. This is all natural, all natural. The universe provides this natural cycles and rhythms of time. And I think the deep significance of Matariki is just for a moment at least, it reminds us that there are other cycles of time in the universe and they're not driven by uh, the artificial clock which we humans have created and rendered tremendously important to ourselves. Um, I happen to think that this identification or this consciousness of natural time is now deeply urgent in our modern culture. Mod the trajectory of modern culture is creating distance between human consciousness and the natural world environments in which we dwell. And it's, it's, uh, you can, it's arguable that many of the problems that we see in, in, in global culture today, despoilation of environments, climate change, energy production issues, overpopulation, all of these kinds of things, could at least partially be attributed to the problem of the relationship between human consciousness and the natural world in which we live. We constantly zoom through life absolutely desensitized to the natural world around us. If we were truly sensitized to the natural world around us, we would not have let the Waikato River get into the state that, it's, that it has got into. If we were truly sensitized to the natural world around us, we would not have let the Monaco Harbour get into the state that it has. And despite the clean green image of things that have been projected around the, around the world on behalf of New Zealand, you know, I don't think we really are that sensitive to the natural rhythms and times of the universe and so on. So at least for me, that's the significance of Matariki, is to remind us of a much more sensitive way of being in the world and in being much more in accord the natural rhythms and energies of the universe. Kia ora. This edition of Smart Talk at the Auckland Museum, recorded by Radio New Zealand, features smart thinkers on the place of Matariki and its traditions in today's culture. Hare Williams, Director of Māori Partnerships at Auckland Museum, the composer and researcher, the Ahukaramu Charles Royal, and historian, storyteller, and orator, Peter Tuday, along with me, Kirk Torrance, in the chair. Our next guest and big thinker is the Director of Māori Partnerships at Auckland Museum, Hardy Williams. I guess uh, I'm the one that's lived the longest on this uh, platform. As an eight-year-old, as a five-year-old, as a three-year-old, I went out with my grandparents. We lived in a Raupo house at Ohiwa. Beautiful place. I miss the blue and the beauty of Ohiwa right now. And I used to think they were witches because they used to go out and do a mihi to the moon and to... Rigel, that's Puanga, and eventually the appearance heralded the beginning, the rising of Matariki. And we'd go out in the chill of dawn, shivering cold. I was too scared to stay in our Whareraupo because ghosts were always around. You dared stay on your own in the dark. So we were socialised as young children to respect the presence of a kehua, a ghost. I never saw a ghost, I've never seen a ghost. But it instilled in us that the protection of anything of value was inherent in how you perceived the natural as well as the spiritual or metaphysical environment. Inside this house is Ulea, a tanifa. It's called a marakiho. A marakiho is characterizes tuhue carving from the Bay of Plenty. This house was built by Ngatiawa and given as a wedding gift to the people of Ngati Maru in Thames. 
a wedding gift. Can you imagine that as a wedding gift for your daughter, for your son? My grandmother was Fiu Taihakwa of Waikirikiri in Ratoki. Fiu's father was Tutakangaho. Tutakangaho handed a lot of information in the Uruwera and Waikaramoana, where my ancestors originate from, to Elsdon Best and James Cowan. And much of that information is about knowledge of the stars. We haven't lost it, it's there. It's there in Waiata. Listen to this, for example. Po po e tangi ana tama kite kai mana waihome tiki ake kite haua kai me amai te pakake kiyutara hei waiu mo tama kiaho mai eto tipuna e uenuku fakarongo. And it goes on for 20 minutes. But in that 20 minutes, it describes the passage of the stars, the cosmology of earth and sky and our whakapapa. Our genealogical link with heaven, with the sky and papatuanuku, the earth, the generosity of a giving earth and the sky, the spiritual elements that sprinkles down with rain that comes down to the earth. But the stars are the ones that gives beauty to, the, to, to our cosmology, but also to the cloak of Rangi that was put across his wife, Papa Tuanuku, the earth. So these deities, Papa Tuanuku, Ureya, the Marakehau, the Kehua, the ghost, Tanifa, that looked after and protected the quality of water, Patupairehe, hands up those of you who know what a Patupairehe is, not many. Wow, I'm, I'm surprised there's so many. The Patupairehe keeps the balance of nature in the bush. Ngāti Whātū believe there's still Patupairehe dwells in the Waitakere Ranges. What I'm getting at really, these are deities that belong to New Zealand. Matariki is an intrinsic part of our heritage, our culture. Just as Santa Claus is, it's become a, at Christmas time, Santa Claus and Christmas become a commercial orgy for New Zealanders, trying to buy, pre buy presents for children. Matariki is not a commercial orgy. It belongs to all of us here in New Zealand. It's not just a Māori celebration. It's for all New Zealanders to share the beginning, the mātahi o te tau, the beginning uh, uh, to start, start again, to make a new beginning. I suppose New Year is like that when you make pledges at New Year to make a difference. But Matariki is not quite as we bit apart from that. So Matariki, what is it? It's part of the deity of the Kaitiakitanga. There's no English equivalent for the word Kaitiakitanga. The closest I've, I've had is uh, guardianship, protection, those words. Kaitiakitanga is a unique word to us. So Santa Claus to another world from the Northern Hemisphere. Easter belongs to the Northern Hemisphere. Dragons belongs to Wales and China, leprechauns to Wales, fairies to, to, to England. And so all of these deities, every culture have their own kaitiaki, their own deities to look after the things they want to be protected. What I'm saying is Matariki, Tanifa and Patupare belong to New Zealand. Their rightful places here. Why do we continue to celebrate Queen's birthday? Why do we keep on celebrating functions that belong to another hemisphere that's out of, out of place here? I get the feeling that people are getting slightly divorced from Easter, but Easter is the equivalent of Matariki. The winter in the northern hemisphere is our equivalent here is Matariki. Matariki does not a, is not a fixed date. It occurs when the new moon, which is about to rise, takes <clears throat> dominance over the, 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 the north-eastern sky. So right now, Matariki is appearing north-east, and it's pretty low in the sky now. Some years ago, when my daughter was uh, eight, I, I always have to mention my daughter, um, I, took her, I woke her up at, when she was uh, asleep. I said, come out and watch Matariki. 
She moaned and groaned. I wrapped her in her sleeping bag. We went out and saw it. And she still groaned and moaned about having to go out there, your stupid dad, going out to watch the stars. That's what I said about my grandparents. But today, she's 20 now. She's up at the university. And she's dad, that's the most enriching experience I've ever had in my life. Viewing Matariki, a part of her and a part of me and a part of New Zealand's future. It is our future. It is our heritage. It belongs to us. It's an intrinsic part of our virtues, of our stories, all the things that we combine with Māori culture and the best of traditions from, from England, initially in the Treaty of Waitangi, and from other parts of the world. Welcome to Matariki. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to open the floor for any questions you may have about Matariki. Kia ora. Um, <clears throat> I was just wondering about uh, the creative and innovative uh, processes that were suggested as being part of um, the renewal and uh, reflecting back and creating anew. Uh, how do the Tangata Whenua feel about uh, other cultures that have made New Zealand home? Um, inventing ways to uh, integrate the concept of Matariki into their life in New Zealand. The kumara is ours. It doesn't taste the same anywhere else in the world. It came from South America. However, the kumara we grow responds to the supplication of this moon just as we all do. Matariki doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the heavens. Our job is simply to recognise its cycles, its movements and how they affect us and how we can be better human beings by recognising that and acknowledging that this can't just belong to us. Our purpose in making known these practices that were outlawed by the suppression of Tohunga Act in 1924 is so that we can all um, nurture our children by these forces of nature and become more unified under this heaven here. Kia ora no Briefly, I think uh, Matariki there is for all cultures that come to New Zealand. If we subscribe to the notion that we celebrate tikanga, that's Māori law, and the best of British traditions, then the other cultures that follow also embraces that idea. So the planting of food, the sharing of food, music, dances, languages, the diversity that is part of our cultures in New Zealand that make up what we are. You know, if we follow the, uh, <coughs> the, the edicts of uh, Len Brown for Auckland to be the most livable city in the world. We have to think about cultural diversity as well. And so one of the things that we need to do is to do exactly what you're doing. Get us together and share the things of beauty in our, in our cultures. So food is about hospitality, generosity, the generosity of the earth. Māori culture is about giving food, and that's generosity. Giving land, they did it here in Auckland, Ngāti Whātua did that. The waka at the back here is a gift to several tribes around uh, the North Island of New Zealand, Ngāti Pro, Ngāti Teata, Ngāti Whātua, and Ngāpuhi. So the waka was carved in Gisborne, my own area, and that's a gift. So the gift of giving is such a central part of the different cultures that we, that we have here. So if you're making jam, if you're making puddings and the things that come from your cultures, uh, that's a wonderful thing to do. Kia ora. I'd like to know why it's taking such a long time to rediscover Matariki. Maybe the suppression of Tanga Act might give us an idea why it's taken a long time to get it back into Maori consciousness and uh, New Zealand's consciousness. Gerald, thank you for your question. I, uh, I don't have any final answer to that question, but I suspect it's uh, quite a complex the answer is complex. Uh, 
certainly it's got something to do with um, the dip in knowledge by Māori about our own knowledge and then the rise again uh, through time. It's certainly got something to do with that. Um, it's certainly got something to do with uh, the renewal and confidence amongst Māori about our own culture and our own language and our own knowledge and so on. Uh, it's certainly, that's a part of it. I think also in wider society, uh, general society, there is um, uh, you know, an opening of the doors uh, regarding the kinds of things that might influence the currents of society. Um, I do think that there is a, uh, a, a new wind blowing with respect to the relationship with, between Māori and Pākehā. Um, I, I think things are, are quite different now than they were even 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Yes, we certainly have our ructions and we certainly go through ups and downs. Uh, but I, one of the really interesting things, and this is why it's tremendously important to continue for New Zealand to continue to enable Māori to become confident in Māori culture, is that as more Māori become more confident in their culture, tension decreases in Māori spirits in relationship to Pākehā. And there, and there is an openness and a willingness to share with, uh, with others. When Māori become enclosed, just like any culture, when we feel endangered, when we feel that somehow we're compromised, that somehow we, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we're weakened in a, in a, in a, in a um, an oppressed situation. But as you build a sense of confidence and self-esteem, slowly a sense of openness uh, uh, emerges. Now, it just so happens, I think that us Māori people have gone back from the times of the 1930s and the 1920s when our elders who were tremendously endowed with their culture were in fact very generous with Pākehā. And my own elders uh, were like this in bestowing tribal names upon, for example, uh, uh, Bledisloe, Lord Bledisloe's son, and uh, on various other things. But, but since the 1950s, with uh, the de decrease in the speaking of the reo, the decrease in knowledge of whakapapa and genealogy and stuff like that, we certainly did become inward. And it's only really been the last kind of 20 years, 10, 20 years, when things are kind of slowly opening up as uh, particularly my generation became the benefits of the uh, language revitalization movements of the last 20 and 30 years. Um, and so anyway, that's a partial answer perhaps to this question of the importance of continuing the investment in Māori language, in Mātauranga Māori, and repatriating it to Māori people to create a sense of confidence in New Zealand society generally. I'd like to thank my guests, Hardy Williams, Director of Māori Partnerships at Auckland Museum, the composer and researcher, the Ahukaramu Charles Royal, and historian, storyteller, and orator, Peter Tuday, for their contributions to this edition of Smart Talk at the Auckland Museum. You can rehear that cordero after this broadcast at our website, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash te ahika. And at our website, you can click through to our photo galleries, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also email us at tiahika at radioNZ.co.nz. Lots of ways for getting in contact with us. So anyway, that's us for another week. Next week, we're in Te Whanaupanui talking oil exploration and fracking, a controversial process for extracting oil and gas from the ground. And what's the basis of the Kohangareo Waipangi Tribunal claim that met under urgency earlier this week? Mariah will report back on that. Nā mihi mahana ki te whānau a Reeves. Nā reire teiwi, kua tai mai nei ki te mutunga a te ahikā. Mai te whānau a te ahikā, kia tata katoa. Mariora tata katoa.